You, uh, you may have heard noises coming from there. Uh, well, we'll start. This is not the introduction to my sermon that I expected, but we'll start with Psalm 84 this morning. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. So uh, some of you are not singing enough, and so God sent friends to help. Um, so if you want them to go away, you're just going to have to up, up the ante a little bit. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be reading the first six verses of that chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pocket of the seat in front of you. And Matthew chapter 6 can be found on page 761 of that Bible. When my family lived in the South, when we lived down in Louisville, um, there were many people there, I think many more people probably than in Michigan, who loved NASCAR. And uh, I had a friend of mine um, who was like-minded in, with me in thinking that NASCAR was foolish and silly. And we had other friends, though, uh, specifically one couple who was about 10 years older than us, uh, who loved it. Um, just they were passionate about it. And so we would have banter with them back and forth where we would continually be making fun of them for liking NASCAR and, and they would be defending NASCAR and this went on for quite a while. One, one week we went on a, a mission trip to Eastern Kentucky and um, we were there to help a church out and the, the lady had to, to go help get supplies or something. And she came back and she said, I've got a gift for you, Doug. And uh, she handed it to me and she said, I want you, anytime you have to write, I want you to use this pen. And I looked at it, and, and it had a picture of Jeff Gordon on it. And uh, I shook my head, and I said, I, I can't use this. I kind of gave her a quizzical look, and I said, I, I can't write with this. And she said, why? Because it has Jeff Gordon on it? And I said, no, because it's a tire gauge, and um, <laughs> it's, it's not a pen. And so some, sometimes even the things that we love, we just don't quite know enough about, right? So... We, we would joke all the time with her about, about the strategy of NASCAR, and we're, we would say, yeah, yeah, the strategy, give it some gas and turn left, we, we get that. But to be, to be truthful, there is strategy in NASCAR. How hard you drive the car is going to decrease fuel consumption, it's going to wear on your tires differently, given the... the nature of the track on that given day, the temperature outside, how the race is going for everybody else. There is strategy as to how hard you're going to push the car, when you're going to pit, when you, you need to get gas and all of that. And almost any sport you come to, any competition you come to, even when the goals are really clear and obvious, there still has to be some sort of way to achieve those goals. You can't just say, hey, I'm going to go run a 5K, and so I'm going to start running really fast. And then in the middle, I'm going to run fast, and toward the end, I'm just going to really just try and run fast, and, and that way I'll be the fastest because I'm just going to run fast. That's a great way to run the slowest 5K of anybody there. You're not even going to finish. You're just going to tire yourself out. It's one thing to know what your goal is. It is another thing to question how you are going to get there. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, Jesus has helped us see what we are to pursue in this life. We're to pursue not anger, but reconciliation. We're not just to pursue the low bar of keeping ourselves from sexual immorality, but of a true and lasting purity, of loving enemies, and going above and beyond even what people who are abusing you are asking you for. But Jesus also knows that it, 
it's not enough simply to know what we are to pursue, but we need to know how we are to pursue it as well. So in this brief section of the sixth chapter, just six small verses, Jesus is going to point us toward how we pursue righteousness and warn us about one general thing. And I know what you're thinking. If he's warning us about one general thing, why do you, Doug, have six points? But just, you're just going to have to, I, I told my, my son was very concerned about this this morning, so we'll get through them pretty quickly. But let's read those six verses first as we go to the word of our Lord. Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of our God. The first thing I'd put before you this morning is that you should seek a positive righteousness. Seek a positive righteousness. And by this, I don't mean an overly optimistic righteousness or a smiley righteousness, although it is good for you to be the happy righteous. But what I mean is when we define what righteousness is, we ought to define it positively. And typically what we do is we define righteousness in two ways, neither of which are typically positive. One is that we, we define it as sort of a, a state that we have, a standing that we have. So, if we were to, to present the gospel to people, this is the kind of righteousness that God gives to us. We stand before him and his court, and we know that we are guilty. The litany of sins that we have committed, the, the defouling of the glory of God that we have done, means that we have a debt to him that we owe to him. We are guilty of sin before him. Yet because Jesus Christ has died for us, and because he has risen for us, Our debt, having been paid, means that God can now look at us and declare us to be righteous, to be not guilty. The debt no longer has to be paid because the debt actually has been paid. And that standing of not guilty is a standing of righteousness before God. It doesn't mean that that we are as holy as we can be. It means that there are no charges against us that will stick. Nothing that can be brought before God's court will stand. This is the heart of the gospel. There's nothing wrong with defining righteousness that way. We define it by standing. We also define it by what it isn't. That's what we mean by negative. We don't mean we define it negatively and that it's bad. We define it negatively based on what we don't do. And quite often when it comes to our works, we're very quick to define righteousness negatively. We want to be clear what we don't do. When asked what makes us righteous, we're quick to list the things that we don't do. Well, I don't murder don't commit sexual immorality. I don't take stuff that doesn't belong to me. Again, thinking of the South, you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Those are the types of things that you define yourself by. This is one of the things that that a lot of churches are very, very good about. They, They are very clear that they are separated from the culture around them, that what they see the culture doing is what they are not going to do. They're defined negatively against the culture. 
Both of those things are excellent. There's nothing wrong with either one of them. Paul, in Romans 3, makes the case that we are granted righteousness by a declaration of God. We are justified by faith. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul tells us when he talks about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he defines what they are to be negatively. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You'll notice that nowhere in there is he telling you what you do now, but he is telling you, you don't do that. Like, you're, you're righteousness. They are unrighteous. Your righteousness means that you don't do those things anymore. There's nothing wrong with defining righteousness that way. But we need to do better than just that. We cannot simply seek just to be different from the world and to define ourselves by what we're not. And while that might put you out of step with the world, which may or may not be a good thing, simply defining what you don't do will not just automatically put you in step with Jesus. After all, you can be against angry music, drinking, abortion, sexual immorality, thievery, and divisiveness, and have people think that your stance on such makes you holy and be completely and utterly out of step with Jesus. If you're not doing the things that Jesus has called you to, you are not seeking a positive righteousness. He has not just called you to not do things. He has called you to do things as well. You ought to seek a positive righteousness. Do the things that Jesus Christ has called you to. Secondly, while you seek a positive righteousness, you should also make a practice of righteousness. Make a practice of it. Aristotle, back in the day, well before the time of Jesus, wanted to talk to people about how to be a virtuous person, how to be a good ethical person. And his whole scenario for all of it wasn't just to receive good teaching. It wasn't to receive moral instruction. You need some of that. But it was in doing you become a virtuous person by doing virtuous things. We're often led by feelings. You don't, in, in Christian talk, you don't feel like you're righteous. You don't feel like doing what is righteous. What Jesus calls us to, though, is much in line with what Aristotle says, better, better by far. But he makes a case. You don't wait for your feelings to lead you to righteousness. You don't need to feel righteous. You need to do it. Start to work at it. So you might not feel like you're the kind of person who is incredibly merciful to others, that, that giving people what they don't deserve in kindness, in grace, is difficult for you. Jesus says, do it. Do it. The word here, practicing your righteousness. Now he says beware of practicing your righteousness in a bad way, but certainly he means for us to practice our righteousness in the good way. That word practice is just the word that means do. Do righteousness. Go out and do it. Like you would say, you've got to do the dishes or do your chores. Go out and do it. So you work at it. It's interesting to me that this makes practice makes it sound like it's a sport or, or music. You, you don't become good at golf by reading Golf Digest. 
And you don't become a musician by sitting through a class on music theory. You have to actually do the thing. If you want to gain righteousness, at the very least, what Jesus is calling you to do is to go out and practice it. You've got to go out and do it. The very things that he's calling you to do, when you don't feel like it, when it doesn't seem right, when, when you have a difficult time leveling off your own emotions and feelings about what's going on with what you know Jesus is calling you to do, do it anyway. Do righteousness. Practice righteousness. Third, see, we're clipping along pretty good. Follow the pattern of righteousness. Follow the pattern of righteousness. Jesus it doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us exactly what we are supposed to do. He lays out two things here that cover a huge swath of ground as to how we are to lead our lives. Jesus doesn't just look back at the things we are not supposed to be and the things that we are not supposed to do, but tells us what we are supposed to do. And it's worth noting here that when he starts talking about giving aid to the poor and praying, he assumes that everyone's going to be doing this. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes is not that they're not doing these things. The problem with people who pursue righteousness but don't pursue it well enough is not that they're not giving to the poor. Everyone gave to the poor. This was requested of people, responsible people who were religious in any way, shape, or form, gave to the poor. This was expected. It was a societal thing. The poor had no help except for what they would get from the, the handouts from people. And so if they didn't get money from people, if people were unwilling to help them and to give to them, they had nothing. Now, we currently have governmental help for folks that seems to a number of people to take the burden off of us. And whether you think that that governmental help is good or bad, I will warn you that thinking that that takes the burden off of us is the wrong way to think about it. It might shift the burden some, but it does not relinquish it from you. Jesus' call for you to give alms, to care for the poor, to care for those less fortunate than you, stands whether or not they're getting help from somewhere else. Again, I, you want to make the case for a smaller government, for a larger government to help those out? That's not at all what I care about. What I care about is that regardless of where the government stands on those things, Christians can never think that because somebody else is doing it, it's not my responsibility. Jesus is calling for it to be your responsibility, and there is enough poverty to go around. You can help. Notice how much ground this kind of thing covers. And you give to the needy, to care for the health of the poor, to make sure that they are taken care of, to give aid and comfort to refugees, to help people in dire circumstances, to visit the widow and the orphan in their distress, to clothe and feed the hungry and the naked. The picture is that we are called to take care of those who are less fortunate than us. Regardless of the situation that they found themselves in, the reasons why they found themselves there, regardless of, of what we might think of the situation that they found themselves in, we are called to take care of those. This is, quite straightforward, a pattern that Jesus gives us. Time and time again, he returns to this kind of idea that his people are people who take care of those who are less fortunate than them. This is, by the way, in Matthew 25, one of the very things 
actually, in Matthew 25, I'll go beyond that, it is the thing that separates out the sheep and the goats. The sheep are the ones who are willing to give a cup of cold water, who visit people in prison. They're the ones who are out helping people who are less fortunate. The goats do not do that thing. We ought to be doing that thing. It's also important to realize we're not just waiting for these things to present themselves. We're not waiting for four people to come and knock on our door, but you are to follow the pattern that's laid out. The pattern is that Jesus has come to help poor people. He sends out his disciples to help poor people. You are to find and help and do, not to wait. You actively pursue. The second thing that he talks about seems a little bit distinct from that. One of the patterns is to give to the poor. The second one is to to pray. And praying seems like it's not really a work that would be counted as a work. But nevertheless, it's quite clear that Jesus considers it a work. And you might think, well, this is, is there just because he's, one, pressing into the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, which is true. It becomes the center of everything. And certainly, some of these bombastic prayers that were given in order for people to cheer on the Pharisees and the scribes when they did this kind of thing makes for good fodder for Jesus. But I think that he actually means that this is something that you do in line with helping poor people that is good for others. Prayer matters. It is a vital and important work for us to do with one another. The first thing that it does is, I mean... It changes you. Jesus has called on us to pray for those who persecute us, to to give aid in prayer to people who are our enemies, who seek our ill and our harm. Now, there's a good number of ways that you can pray about those kind of things without ever praying for those people. You You can pray that they stop. You can pray that they cease. You can pray for God's righteousness and justice to be present in that situation. But a number of the ways in which we pray for those things end up just being prayers for us and not prayers for them. In order to pray, truly pray for people who persecute you, who are your enemies, who seek your ill, you automatically come to a realization that you are asking for God to do something that is, in a sense, unjust. You're asking for his mercy. They are harming you. They are wishing ill upon you. They're slandering you. They're committing libel against you. Rumors they're spreading, whatever the case might be. And you've got to go and you've got to look before God and say, God, forgive them. That's a difficult thing to do because you are asking for someone to get something that they do not deserve. But immediately, if you feel reticence about asking for that, you feel like they don't deserve it, they shouldn't have it, one of the first and immediate things that you were to think about is that you are requesting this from God Almighty against whom you have sinned greatly. And he is in the business of giving people better than they deserve because that's what he's done for you. It is almost impossible to not grow in love and compassion for people when you pray for them. Pray because it changes you. Just to become a righteous person, you do righteousness. Pray for people and you will begin to grow a heart for them. But it doesn't just change you. It helps other people. It's, it's akin to giving to the poor. 
We give to the poor because we have material things that can help them. But we know that the poor in this world have many more needs than we could possibly provide with just material things. And not just the poor in the world, everybody has more than we could possibly simply, if we gave up everything we had, if we, if we gave our lives away, all of our finances, all of our effort, all of our time, if we gave it away, we could not possibly give people what they truly need. And so we pray. We pray because we know that our God is capable of giving people everything they need. Atheists, when bad things happen, when there's a tragedy, there are people who are just irreligious, will say things like, hey man, thinking of you. It's not bad. They're showing compassion. We ought not think that that doesn't do anything. It does help. For people to know that they're not being forgotten, for people to know that other people care about them and they're thinking about them, that is encouragement. It's not that it does nothing. The problem is that it's not the same as prayer. And to think that it's the same as prayer is completely wrong. They think that when we say, hey, we're praying for you, it's just a way of, of also saying, basically, we're thinking of you. We're, we're, we're on the same page. Our compassion, our sympathies are with you. We care about you. We want what's best for you. But we're doing something far better than that. We are asking for the God of the universe, who has created everything by the word of his power, to give aid and comfort and help to people who are in dire circumstances. We're asking the one who can do all things by the power of his might, who cannot be restrained by anything, to actively go and help people. That's not the same thing as saying, we're thinking of you. When we pray, we are helping others. You might not see it immediately. You might not see the fruit of it. You might not see the results of it the moment that you pray, but you are helping others because you are praying to a God who helps others. God responds to your prayer. We materially help out people when we can. And when we can't, we pray that God might do the rest. We do what God has called us to, and we rely upon him to do everything else. We follow the pattern of righteousness laid out for us. That leads us to our fourth point, that we are to keep a private righteousness. We are to keep a private righteousness. The emphasis in, in these verses is quite clearly the intent to keep your righteousness to yourself, to make sure that you are not making a public matter of, of these, these efforts, these works, so that people would give you a good response, that they would applaud you and praise you for it. So Jesus gives us examples of how this is to happen. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. My left hand is famously incompetent in every way. It's good to hold a wedding ring and to hold up my watch, and beyond that, it's not good for much. I've often said that if I lost it and I had a hook on it, my wife would like it less, but I would probably like it more. It's just a useless thing. And so because it's so silly and stupid, it doesn't know anything that's going on, okay? And Jesus' point is that, that you should be giving so secretly with your right hand that, that the other one doesn't know what's going on. And while we can't really explain what he means by that, I think we all kind of know what he means by that. He also says that you weren't to pray publicly, right? Go into your closet, shut the door. And God, our, our translation says, the God who sees in secret, but it probably means more like the God who is in that secret place, that God is present with you. When no one else is there, 
God is there with you. He hears your prayers. He knows you're praying. God is there with you. So do it in private. The point for both of those things is really simple. Work hard to keep your deeds quiet. Because when you do so, you are most assured, most assured, that you will not be doing them for reasons of the applause of men. I mean, we all appreciate being appreciated. We all appreciate people telling us that was kind of you, that was good of you, to to know and to have acknowledged that you did something that was good. All of us appreciate that kind of thing. But this tendency, which isn't, it's not bad, can run away with us so that we do good not to do good, but to get response from people, to get applause from men, to get that slap on the back and that attaboy. And so Jesus tells us very clearly, work hard to do righteousness in such a way that that's impossible, so that that temptation isn't there for you. By keeping your deeds in secret, you're doing them because they think that they're good to do on their own. You do the works because they're right to do, not because of what you get from them. Although, as we will see, Jesus isn't, isn't saying that you get nothing from them. This isn't pure altruism. But nevertheless, we are prone to getting that immediate reward. And Jesus says, do everything you can to postpone it. Doing such things in secret simply helps safeguard ourselves. God sees in secret when we pray. He is with us in secret. He sees, he's present, he knows. And what he calls us to do then will always be seen by him. Those who did these very outward displays thought that it was good not simply to do that work, which I have no doubt that they thought was also good, but they did them in such a way that they got applauded for them. And Jesus is emphatic. That reward is not what you should pursue. That is not how you pursue righteousness. Avoid that. As much as possible, do it in private so that the works stand on their own. But that leads us to kind of a correction Number five, display a public righteousness. It's easy, and many have made the mistake, of thinking that what Jesus here has called us to is to never do good works out in the open. So pray only in closed closets. Look at what sinners we are because we've already done this publicly. And you are only to give when other people can't know you're giving. We're going to be even worse sinners in a minute because our church is going to take up an offering. But if you think of Jesus as solely saying that you can't do any good works when people can see you, you are badly misreading what Jesus has to say here. Jesus is not saying that doing righteousness where others can see is a problem. It's not the fact that other people see you doing it. Not even the happenstance that they would give you a claim for doing it. That's not the problem. The problem is motivation and intent. Verse 1, again, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What is your motivation for doing it in public? So you're not just to hide. It's kind of impossible to hide some of the works that you're supposed to do. I mean, James says, what are you going to do when you see a brother or sister who's hungry and naked? Are you just supposed to tell them, have faith and go your own way? And he says, no, you've got to help them. But you can't say, listen, brother or sister, I know that you're naked and you're hungry, 
But if I give you food now, Carl's going to see me, and that's no good for me. So if you could wait just a couple more hours, and I'll slip you something in private. Like James is going to say, no, give the man a piece of bread, right? And some pants. Like, help him out. Like, it doesn't matter if other people can see you. Do what is good. What's more, it also doesn't make sense of stuff that Jesus has already said. Chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they might see your good works. Like, you are to do good things in public so that people see those good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to avoid going out and doing public works and making highfalutin prayers and and doing things that are generally to be done simply to attract attention to ourselves. But we are absolutely to go out to do good works so that we would attract attention to God. It is the intention that matters. And one of the things that Jesus knows you can't always do is trust your intentions in things. And so the warning is, go and do as much good as you can quietly, but do a lot of good publicly as well. Do everything you can to do the works that I put before you in righteousness and in holiness, not in order to be seen by people, but in order that people might give glory to God. When you do things publicly, and you must, do them for his glory. Do them for your good. Jesus wants to make sure that the applause that you seek is not applause for your own sake, but applause for God. Which brings us to point six. Gain a payment for righteousness. There are many who think that rewards, especially in light of doing good things, somehow negates the good of good things and negates the good of good work. It's not a good work anymore. If you're getting recompensed for it, if you're getting paid for it, it's just, it's just work. It's just you're... You're gaining from it. It's just work. You did it for the applause, the compensation of you know, public notoriety or higher social ranking or more followers on Instagram, whatever it is. This sort of negates the fact that it's good. It's just something that you're doing for payment. It's transactional. And this bleeds especially hard into theology, especially for Christians. Because we are the people who want to believe that God doesn't give us what we deserve. It's like the whole point of our salvation, that Jesus took on our sin and our payment, and he gives us, in Luther's great transaction model, he takes our debt and gives us his inheritance. He gives us what we don't deserve. That's the whole point of the way we talk about salvation. The penalty is paid out by him who didn't owe it, And the reward comes to us who don't deserve it. And works are right out. Paul, so emphatically, works are right out. That's what Paul writes in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, in in Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Man, that describes everybody. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, God, God doesn't give us good things because we've done good things. But we need to hear accurately and correctly what the word says so as we're not letting the theological tail wag the dog. Rewards are a vital idea in Christian theology. It's true that we're not saved by our good works so that our salvation is not a reward for anything that we have done. But that doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that God doesn't reward other things. So here, as elsewhere, the point is that God does indeed see our works and reward us for them. Hebrews 11.6 makes this sort of the basis for you to even trust in God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, which is such a base. I love the fact that he even says that in there because it makes, it makes the very next thing seem just as basic as this, Right? You need to believe that God exists, check, that makes sense, and that he rewards those who seek him. You need to believe in a God who is so generous that he gives good things, especially in reward for good things that are done. God pays us for the good we do, does not repudiate our insistence that salvation is by grace. Just because you were saved by grace doesn't mean that everything comes to you that you don't deserve. God does give you things that you deserve. And what's more, far being this against our understanding of salvation, it actually stands right in line with it because it's all based on faith. All of this is based on faith. Faith is required to act like this. Not only do we need to believe that God exists, but we need to believe that God sees all of the secret things that we do. We need to believe that if we give to somebody who is in need, without that person knowing, without our spouse knowing, without our children knowing, without anyone in this church knowing, no one else in existence knows that we helped that person out. We have to believe that God does. And what Hebrews is saying is, all the more we have to believe that he will reward us for it. Well, we walk here on the earth, it is impossible for us to see the rewards that Jesus is talking about here. He's going to turn in just a couple of verses and talk about laying up treasures in heaven. That's exactly what he's calling you to do here. What he's not saying is that the Father who sees in secret will reward you only, but the idea is that that reward is kept with him in heaven. It's awaiting you. It's not given to you here. You have to wait for it. You have to believe not only that God sees you, but that he's keeping your reward for you in heaven, that it's awaiting you. It's all by faith. The Psalms say that fools say there is no God. Those same fools wonder aloud throughout the Psalms, Psalm 73, Psalm 14. They wonder aloud, if I do bad things and I don't get zapped for it immediately, is there even a God who can see me? Where is God's justice? I, I can get away with it, and I can get away with it, and I can get away with it, and I can get away with it. Because they're unwilling to believe in faith that God actually does give back to people what they deserve. While we skip out on a good portion of that with salvation, that we, we have been given salvation as grace by God, 
When we do good things, all the more we ought to believe that God will indeed reward us for those good things. I, I think that I would put it this way. If God has given, by grace, salvation for our sins, in other words, we have sinned, and what he has given in his generosity and his kindness and his grace and his goodness is salvation. When we do evil, that is how God acts. Think of how he will reward us when we do what is right. It is kept with God perfectly, where neither moth nor rust destroy. So work hard to practice your righteousness because there is a great reward for you in heaven. Gain a payment for righteousness. In 1972, Stanford ran what is now famously known as the marshmallow test. It's not as fun as you're probably thinking right now. They, they took a bunch of young kids and they put a marshmallow on the table in front of them and they said, listen, kiddo, you can have that marshmallow whenever you want. I'm going to leave. I'm going to come back in 15 minutes. And if that marshmallow is still there, I'll give you a second marshmallow. It was a long-range study. And they found out that the kids who were able, at each progressive age, the younger they were able to hold off from taking that marshmallow, they had a number of life indicators that turned out were excellent for them. Their health was better, interestingly, although they waited for more sugar. They somehow knew how to handle themselves better and their, their lives were better. They were less impulsive. They had better test scores. They got better jobs. They got better education. Now, recently, those results have kind of been thrown up in the air a little bit, but in 2020, a University of California, San Diego professor did another take on this. And what she told the kids was this, not only are we going to repeat the exact same setup, but if you withhold from taking it, not only will you get a second marshmallow, but I will tell either a peer or a teacher that you waited. And you know what it turns out? Many more kids were able to withhold taking that marshmallow when they knew that someone else was going to find out, someone who wasn't there. We are those kids, right? Not just in the fact that we're humans and we need to learn how to do this, but this is exactly what Jesus is holding out for us. You, you, you do good work here, and when I come back, I will give you a reward that is greater than you can imagine. So don't be overly concerned with eating that which is in front of you. Wait, wait. It's often said that when it comes to investing, there is one rule, and that is invest early. $2,000 invested when you're 20 will yield you more money than $20,000 invested when you're 50. The earlier you invest, the more you invest when you're young, the better it is. Friends, there's a better investment strategy than that. Invest with God. Whether you're 20, whether you're 12, whether you're 50, whether you're 70, invest with him. Be poor in the things of the earth, that you might be rich in the things of heaven. Because, friends, it, it's an exchange that is worth more than its weight in gold. Wait for the return of God. And see in who sees, knows the good works that you do in secret. And will give you worth a reward worthy more than anything that you can imagine. It's better than the things of the earth is better even than a second marshmallow. He will do it for you. Have faith in him, trust in him, pursue righteousness, and have faith in God. Let us pray. Father, help us to have that faith. 
Help us to pursue a reward that we here on this earth will never touch or see. Let us have faith to give away what we can so that we might hold out for your greater reward. And help us to pursue the good works that you have created us as a master craftsman in Jesus Christ that we might walk in them. As always, we ask these things through and by your word in the name of Jesus Christ for our good and for his glory. Amen.